Amen. Good evening, everybody. Thank you, Megan, for leading us so well, and uh, thank you all for coming to join with us tonight uh, here on our third week in this series, Revival Now. And we've been asking the question, what could revival look like if it was to come in 2021, or what should it look like in the sense of what is the revival that we need? And if you've been with us, um, we've been looking at, first of all, we need a new Jesus movement. And when I say movement, I'm not talking about an organization or an institution. I'm talking about a movement of the Spirit. But we need a new Jesus movement where Jesus is the center of it all, and he is the motivation for everything. And you can listen to that recording when it's available. And then last week, we looked at how we need a new prayer movement. And I'll not repeat myself on that, but we do need God to pour out as Zechariah said, and that was our initial reading, a spirit of grace and supplication. We don't have what it takes to pray up a revival. Hope you know that. It takes the Holy Spirit, his prevenient move. First and foremost, he needs to move in order that our hearts are turned toward him. Um, And that's what we desperately need in our land. But tonight we're going to look at, we need a new holiness movement. I don't want to run out the door at once. Um, I, I think holiness evokes different concepts depending on your perspective and indeed your experience of that word. And for many of us, it has to be said, holiness, it, it conjures up a tight, stuffy, demanding re- religiosity that we don't really want anything to do with. And that's usually measured up by a strict set of rules to live by, do's and don'ts, and ethic or commandments, even if they're from the Bible. But that's what, that's what we're reminded of when we talk about holiness. And that's very sad, because that is not what God's holiness is like. And remember, he is holiness. He is holiness. He is the definition of what holiness is, because he is holy. And holy mean very basically means unique, one of a kind, separate from everything else. Unique, one of a kind, set apart from everything else that exists. And therefore, if if God's holiness is not tight, stuffy, demanding, and religious, and based purely on a strict ethic, well then ours ought not to be either, because our holiness is meant to be exactly the same as his. So I think what we need to do here tonight to help us is, first of all, establish what holiness is not, and and then move on to what holiness is. And tragically, like all religions, Christendom has created what I would call a caricature of holiness. So let's, let's look at this for a moment or two. First of all, I think there has been a great misrepresentation of holiness. So what is holiness not? Well, let's look at the misrepresentations of holiness. For instance, in the medieval era, somberness, and maybe not just in the medieval era, but somberness was equated with holiness, and moroseness with godliness. And that's very much in contrast to the early Christians that we find in the Acts of the Apostles who uh, were marked with the attitude of gladness and joy. We read in Acts 13, 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. But the Middle Ages were very different. 
And even some of the reformers, the Protestant reformers, they would read the Ten Commandments aloud at the beginning of their services in order to give a sense, I suppose, of God's awesomeness, but I would also add to that, probably gave a sense of austerity to the service the parishioners were entering into. In Puritan New England in the U.S., the Puritans were noted for fining children who smiled in church. Don't smile. Imagine that. Now, probably not a lot of the children were smiling in church anyway, it has to be said. But even in Puritan New England, they, they created a role called tithing man. And it wasn't much, just in case you thought from his picture here. Tithing man actually went round the pews with a huge rod with a basket at the end of it, and he collected the offering. But the other end of the rod was used for anyone who might snooze during the service, and they were given a dig with it. So the tithing man um, really speaks of the love of the Lord, doesn't it? Um, is it any wonder the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said scornfully about Christians of his day, I would believe in their salvation if they looked a little more like people who have been saved. And it was A.G. Swinburne, the English poet and critic, he, he lived between 1837 and 1909, he pictured Jesus as the pale Galilean who made the world grow gray at his breath. Now that is a diabolical misrepresentation of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. But unfortunately, that is often how the church has portrayed him. And that is not holiness. William Barclay, the Bible commentator, said, a gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms. And nothing in all religious history has done Christianity more harm than its connection with black clothes and long faces. And I believe that's so true. So we must beware of the misrepresentation of holiness. But I'm not talking about perfectionism either. I'm certainly not talking about introspection. Let's look at those for a moment, because these are the misconceptions of holiness. If the misrepresentations of holiness are the black clothes and the long faces, well, the misconceptions of holiness, even among modern-day Christians, are Perfectionism and introspection. What is perfectionism? Well, perfectionism effectively is when you hold yourself to a perfect standard. And right away the problem begins. Because the percentage is 100% of us are failures. One out of one people fail. So if you're a perfectionist, you're doomed to failure. <laughs> the problem is that we often hold ourselves to too high a standard. And because of that, because the standards we set for ourselves, or maybe a particular religious group sets for themselves, is too high, inevitably we will fail and we will give up. Let me give you an illustration. This is how I illustrate uh, perfectionism. Who at the beginning of the year usually takes up a Bible reading scheme in January? 
Now, I'm not even asking you to read through the Bible in a year. That's quite a good thing to do. It's quite a tall order for some people. But you just start a scheme, because usually if you aim at nothing, you'll have it. Um, And so we want to have disciplines in our lives, yes. And how many of us by the end of the first week of January are struggling, or at least have missed one day with all the overeating and lying in and all the... You know what I'm talking about. And so what do you do? You miss a day and you just say, all right, I'll have to cram the next day and do 10 chapters or whatever it is the next day in order to catch up a bit. And by the end of January, many people have jacked the whole thing in. The reading scheme hits the wall. Why? Because they're, they're trying to be perfect in it. And let me ask you the question, what would be better? Would it not be better that you skip the day that you missed and then start again the next day? And by December, at the end of the year, you would have probably read 80% of the Old and the New Testament. Would that not be better than quitting at the end of January? But what stops us doing that is perfectionism. Perfectionism actually is the reason for not only the high flyers in life, but the dropouts and the bums, the ones who bail out on life, because if they can't do it perfectly, they're not going to do it at all. And this is a huge enemy in our Christianity. G.K. Chesterton once said, If a thing's worth doing, who can finish it? It's worth doing well. No, that's not what G.K. Chesterton said. That might have been what your dad or your granda said. But G.K. Chesterton said, if a thing's worth doing well, it's, or if a thing's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. I can see the cogs going around here with Mitch. That's counterintuitive to him, I know. But what he's saying is, if a thing's worth doing, do it. Whether you do it well or not, if it's worth doing, do it. Yes? It was actually C.S. Lewis who said that many a brilliant book was never written because the person, the author, didn't start writing and write some rubbish before they came to the great classic because they wanted to write their classic first. This is perfectionism. Now, whilst today's church may well be guilty of lowering the standards of biblical holiness, I grant you, the answer is not to create standards of our own that are impossible to attain. That's what the Pharisees did. Now, this might surprise you, but the Pharisees were a back-to-the-Bible movement. They were. They saw that Judaism was moving away from the tenets of the laws of Moses. The Sadducees were liberals. They didn't believe in spirits, angels, demons, the afterlife, resurrection. And so they came as a back to the Bible, effectively a revival movement. Let's revive the law of Moses and our ancient faith. But the problem was, well, the problem was in Matthew 23, verse 4, Jesus said this, Um, They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. They were putting burdens upon people, whereas Jesus called people away from burdens that he would bear their burdens. And the message renders Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Some of you know and love it. Are you tired, Jesus said, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's a whole different thing, isn't it? So holiness is not perfectionism, and neither is it introspection. 
And introspection is the fruit of perfectionism. Introspection is simply looking inside and starting to psychoanalyze yourself spiritually and carving yourself up on your own dissection table. And this is the reason why religion, even the Christian version of it, will drive you mad. And so I'm warning you against that tonight. If you look inside, you will go crazy. Because you will find all sorts of contradictions, all sorts of wickedness, And you might say, well, does the New Testament not encourage us to examine ourselves and so on? Yes, it does, but always in the Spirit. And Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24 says this, Search me, the psalmist prays, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the direction of the psalmist prayer is, Lord, you look inside me and you tell me what I need to know in the order that I need to know it and deal with it with the power of your Spirit's help. But if you start going internally and rummaging around, you're going to get into problems and the enemy will use that because he's the accuser of the brothers and the sisters and he will use that as ammunition against you and effectively you can often be cooperating with the enemy. So introspection is not the answer. And look at history, and you will see many holiness movements that were basically driven by a religious but a fleshly attempt to be holy. Now, don't misunderstand me tonight. We're seeing what holiness isn't. Beware of religious misrepresentations of it and misconceptions of it, like perfectionism and introspection. But God has called us to holiness. He said in the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. Jesus said, be holy even as your, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I want us to turn to our reading tonight uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, and it's a reasonable reading down to verse 18. And um, don't worry, the introduction isn't any indication of the length of the sermon, so uh, don't panic. But verse 1 of Ephesians 5. And Mitch prayed this up the stairs when we were just together praying. And what a verse. What a verse. Therefore be imitators of God. What? Be imitators of an all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent being, that spirit. Well, that's what it says. Be imitators of God as dear children. Well, here's how. Here's how. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, And I hope that you know this, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Underline that. Let no one deceive you with empty words to the contrary. For because of these things, the wrath 
of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And this is the New Testament, by the way, and it's talking about the wrath of God. So I don't care what any modern theologian tries to do with airbrushing the Bible. This is what the Bible teaches. There is the wrath of God. Thankfully, Jesus took it on the cross so that we don't have to. But it exists. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, the sons of disobedience, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. There's some things acceptable to the Lord and some things not. And it's our job to find out which is which. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So you can have no doubt when you read Paul here that flagrant sin in the church is unacceptable. Worldliness in the church today, as I would suggest, like never before in modern memory, There is worldliness in the church. It is not acceptable. The great issue is the how of holiness. It's okay saying, well, we shouldn't do all these bad things, and they ought not to be in the church. And we've now defined what a misconception and misrepresentation of holiness may be. But then what is it? And how do we get it? And I think that's at the core of what a new holiness movement needs to be. It needs to move away from the misrepresentations and the misconceptions, but actually get back to the heart of what true holiness is. And, well, I would define it like this. It comes down to not trying harder, but dying harder. Not trying, but dying. Galatians 2, verse 20. What did Paul say? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, holiness, what is it? Well, effectively, it is the crucified and the resurrected life. And sadly, We have gotten away from the cross. Not just preaching the cross of Christ, but preaching the cross that is meant to be ours, that we are crucified on. Well, that's his cross, of course, because we we died with him. We were buried with him. That's what baptism signifies. And we rise again with him to resurrection life. And this is our holiness. We have no holiness. We can't get any holiness of our own. The only holy one is God, and the only way we get holiness is his holiness imparted to us by faith in the righteousness of Christ. 
And so this is Romans 8, if you want to turn to it. This is what we need to, to learn again. Romans 8, verse 2 through to 4. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And the law of sin and death both includes the laws of Moses and the law of sin in our own bodies. And so what can free us from the law of sin in us that breaks the laws of Moses? For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So it's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus that has made us free from the law of sin and death. We can't keep the law. Why? The law of God was good, but we are weak in our sinful flesh. The only one who could keep the law of God was Jesus Christ. He came and he said he fulfilled the law of God. And so the only way we can fulfill what God requires is for Christ to be in us and we to be in Christ. And that's by faith, folks, because he died for us and he rose again. And that is the crucified and the risen life. That's what we are meant to be living. That's why after Paul in Ephesians 5, he delineates all these wicked things that will never inherit eternal life. And then he says, now waken up, and in verse 18, don't be drunk with spirits, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the only way that you're going to be able to be imitators of God and love like Jesus and live like Jesus is if you're filled with Jesus. Filled with the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit. And He is the Holy Spirit. I'm not asked for a show of hands, but I hope there are many of you, if not all of you, who have discovered that the Christian life is utterly impossible to live. Have you? Because it's not an ordinary life. It's not merely a human existence. It is a supernatural life. It is in earthen vessels, but it is God in us. Christ in you the hope of glory. We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. And so if you think that whenever Jesus said, you remember in Matthew 5, 20, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. If you think he was writing the disciples' report card and saying, must try harder, you've completely misunderstood the whole gospel. Do you know how righteous these Pharisees were in law-keeping? I know there were hypocrites among them. But there were those who were studious and perfectionists and blameless in their keeping of the external law. But as Mrs. Alexander put it in her great hymn, he died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. 
And the only holiness that we can have is the holiness of Jesus. And I wish with time, but I, well, I could go on forever, as you know, but the rich young ruler, remember he came to Jesus, what must I do that I might receive eternal life? And the emphasis was on that word do. And he saw Jesus, this incredible religious figure, this rabbi who could do no wrong. And he said, I want to be like you. But he thought it could happen through law. And so Jesus had to tease this out. That's what that was all about. Have you kept the commandments, etc.? And he could say, I have done. Well, we could think about that for a moment. But ultimately, Jesus replied to that man when he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus say? There is none good but God. Now, why did he say that? Because that young lad had aspirations about himself. He thought that he could achieve the standards of Jesus by his morality and his religiosity. And that's why the disciples were aghast and they said, well, if this man can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus said it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But with, with man, these things are impossible. But with God, nothing's impossible. What's he saying? When we realize we are bankrupt, when we realize we have nothing, when we realize we can't do anything to achieve or inherit eternal life, we can't keep the law, we can't ever have righteousnesses that will be anything other than filthy rags in God's sight, then we're, we're starting in the right place. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says this. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now let that sink in for a moment. Hebrews chapter 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And we could talk about that. Is that just the righteousness of Christ on us? That means that we can go to heaven one day and have eternal life now. That might well be the case. But certainly what it does mean, I think, too, is that if you want to be holy now, there's a saying. The two eyes, and I'm using a bit of a play on the letter I as well, there are two eyes of holiness that will help you see the Lord. The first I, letter I, is identity. And the second letter I is intimacy. And I believe that these are at the heart of a new holiness movement. We need to call out to a church that is bankrupt. And let's face it, we are in trouble. The amount of leaders and figures, and but for the grace of God, go I and take heed he that thinks he stands lest he fall. But they are falling like dominoes at the minute. And there's a, a severe lack of authenticity and holiness in the ranks of the church today. And we need to rediscover holiness, but not from this misconception or misrepresentation of an empty religiosity or perfectionism or introspection, but from the identity of who we are and who we know in intimacy. So let me share this with you as I bring everything to a close. First of all, identity. Do you remember the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ? The first temptation of Satan to him was what? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread. Remember, he's fasting for 40 days. That would have been very tempting. 
But you notice that the enemy came to him and said, if he questioned his sonship, his identity. But more than that, and a lot of people don't notice this, go to the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 3, where, 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 where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, and the heavens were cleft open, and God the Father spoke and said, this is my son. Is that what he said? No. This is my beloved son in whom is all my delight. Satan didn't come to him and said, if you're the beloved son of God. He dropped that bit. You know why? Because he knew that knowing your identity as a loved son or daughter is the key to overcoming any temptation. Do you know who you are? And if you're struggling with sin like we all do, because we've all got, we're all sinners and we've all got besetting sins that we, we are easily tripped up by, okay? I've got mine. They mightn't be yours. But I discovered a fair while ago that the only thing that will deliver me of the love of sin is the love of God. The only thing. The only thing that will deliver me from sin is if I see my God and his Christ and the Holy Spirit as more attractive and more wonderful and more appealing. Only the love of God will deliver you from the love of sin. Love is fulfillment of the law. All right? The law of love is the fulfillment of the law. Love God and love your neighbor. Love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that what Scripture says? So you need to have your identity intact, knowing who you are as a son or a daughter of God, beloved, accepted in him. I love what Neil Anderson says, and I highly recommend his material, who you are in Christ and um, what you have, your significance and your belonging, etc. One of the mighty statements that he said over the years was this. What you do does not determine who you are. What you do does not determine who you are. But who you are determines what you do. And if you don't know who you are in your identity, you're always going to keep falling over and over again. <laughs> so, if you believe you're only a sinner saved by grace, and I know you might like the hymn, I'm sorry about that, but if you believe you're only a sinner saved by grace, you know what you will do? You will sin by faith. If you believe you are only a sinner, what's that saying? What we believe affects how we behave. So if you believe you're only a sinner, you're going to keep struggling with sin until you realize you're a saint, until you realize you're a son or a daughter of God, until you, all, you realize all blessings of God in heavenly places are yours and everything that you need to overcome has been given to you. Do you understand how you view yourself? And so when sin comes along and tempts me, and sometimes I do fall, but I find this to be a very good way of overcoming. I am tempted, but I look at it and I say, that's not who I am. That's not who I am. And even when you do fall and you look back and you confess your sin to the Lord, it's important to rise out of that and say, that's not who I am. It might be who I used to be, but it's not who I am anymore. And listen, holiness will only ever come if you understand your identity. And we need, and isn't it amazing, maybe not, that the, the enemy in these last days, one of his huge targets in his sights is the whole issue of identity. 
I know it's sexual identity largely, but it's identity. Identity politics dominate our sphere today. And if we're going to see a movement of holiness, we need to start telling people who they are as created in God's image and who they are as new creatures in Christ Jesus. But the second eye of seeing the Lord in holiness, the second eye is intimacy. And like any close relationship, communication and contact are vital to keep it alive. And this is the greatest intimacy. It's not as if God asks us to invite him into our lives. It's actually God invites us into his life, into the life of the Trinity, into the love and the fellowship of the Godhead. And that's the greatest intimacy. And therefore, it ought to deserve surely the greatest attention that we have. Isn't it true we... It's recognized we take on some characteristics of those we spend the most time with, or most often with. That's why we tell our children, be careful what company you keep. Isn't that right? And the principle of holiness, and as far as intimacy is concerned, is simply this. Beholding will lead to becoming. You become what you behold. Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says? But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of God. From one glory to another glory, by the Holy Spirit. Hi, as we behold Jesus we become Jesus. Hmm. Now, I want you to go as I bring things to close to Isaiah 6. Because I started with this, you remember, uh, at the opening of the, the building here under the use of crying Jesus, was it the 15th of October, somewhere along there? doesn't seem so long away, really. But, and I, I alluded to it the last time, uh, sorry, the first time, in this series. And you remember here in Isaiah 6, but let's look at it, thinking of what we've just shared together. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up in his train of the robe filled the temple. And you remember we saw everybody's eyes were fixed on Uzziah. He was an exemplary king for over 50 years. And they got their eyes fixed on him and not fixed on the Lord. And when he died, the prophet got his eyes back on God. And the old needs to die before the new can come. And he saw the Lord high and lifted up his tree and the robe filling the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his feet. With two he covered his face. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with the smoke. So I said... Woe is me. I am undone. That word undone means finished, racked. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, 
which he had taken with tongs from off the altar, and he touched my lips with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Now listen, Isaiah was of royal blood. He was a royal prophet. But he's also known as the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. I am not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told that the Hebrew in Isaiah's prophecy is exemplary in comparison with the rest of the Old Testament and and with Hebrew. It's a certain type of Hebrew that sets him apart as a literary giant. Isn't that interesting? And yet here he is, and as he beheld the glory of the Lord, the holy, holy, holy glory of the Lord, what was his first reaction? The Shakespeare of the Old Testament says, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And his strength was actually his weakness. And we don't know what this sin was, whether he took pride in his prophecies, or whether he was fast and loose with his words, or whether he was involved in corrupt communication. I don't know. But there was something to do with unclean lips. And you see the pattern here. This is the holiness, where you see his holiness. But there's a sacrifice for that. And the seraphim flew and took a blood-soaked, fiery coal from off that altar and touched his lips, and he was cleansed. And that's what we need. He beheld and he became identity and intimacy. W.T. Stead was a reporter who interviewed Evan Roberts, who was used mightily in the 1904-1905 Welsh revival that touched the world. And the reporter asked the question to Roberts, can you tell me how you began to take to this work Oh, yes, said Roberts. I can if you wish to hear it. For a long, long time, I was much troubled in my soul and my heart by thinking over the failure of Christianity. Oh, it seemed such a failure. Such a failure. And I prayed and prayed, but nothing seemed to give me any relief. But one night after I had been in great distress praying about this, I went to sleep, and at one o'clock in the morning, suddenly I was awakened up out of my sleep, and I found myself with unspeakable joy and awe in the very presence of Almighty God. And for the space of four hours, I was privileged to speak face to face with him as a man speaks face to face with a friend. And five o'clock, it seemed to me as if I again returned to earth. I wouldn't have believed that except for the 1904-1905 revival. That was a man who experienced intimacy with the Lord. Granted in a very sovereign way. But it made a holiness that can't be wrought by any other means. Duncan Campbell describes his own experience of surrendering fully to Christ. He was shot off his horse in World War I and seriously wounded in the last cavalry charge of the Great War. And there was a Canadian trooper 
who was carrying him on horseback to the hospital, the casualty clearing station. And Campbell reviewed his life, and he saw how empty it had been even as a Christian. And he prayed McShane's prayer. Have you heard of it? Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. And you know what God did with Duncan Campbell. Question is, tonight, can you pray that prayer? Can I pray that prayer? Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. Let's pray. I just want to, in the quietness for a moment or two, ask you, is there something you need to repent of? We talked last week about how we need repentant prayer of my people that are called by my name. And we, we emphasize how that verse has been recited so often, but we so often miss, turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their wicked ways. And listen, we need a new holiness movement. We do. We're totally compromised because of our own hypocrisy. And this is why we're not cutting it. It's not that God needs perfection. He can't get it except in Jesus. But he puts Jesus in us and that's how he gets it. There is a holiness. There is a holiness that is supernatural. The question is, and it's really staggering, are we willing to let our idols go? Are we willing to let our pet sins that we like to every now and again? It might only be a very fringe occurrence, but every now and again we like to tipple. We like to touch them. We like to indulge them. We like that open door to be there for us. Listen, it's time, folks. It's cheap talk of revival. If we're not prepared to say, Lord, I'm going to die out to myself, to my sin, and I want to be resurrected completely in your life. Revival starts with personal revival. And you can have the biggest revival prayer meeting in the whole world, but if there isn't one or two people there with personal revival in their hearts, it'll mean nothing. Every revival started with one or two individuals or a small handful who were sold out for God. The question is, will that be you? Will that be me? So Lord, I ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, just lead individuals here tonight where they stand before you. And Lord, you know my heart is not being to condemn or heap shame or guilt on anybody. I can't handle that myself. And I don't want other people to go out. Thank you, Jesus, that you took our guilt and shame on the cross. And we are free and it is finished. But Lord, we still have to walk in that righteousness. We still have to imitate in the sense of live out that righteousness not walk in darkness as children of light. So, Lord, would you come tonight just where people are at and give them grace to repent.
Give them grace to confess. Give them grace for restitution, to put things right that are wrong. Give them grace to stand up in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God so that he may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Lord, we do live in the evil day. But Lord, we need to redeem this time. And we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. The sevenfold Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. Lord, would you empty the pubs again? Would you empty the clubs again? And would you empty them of Christians? Lord, would you take away our love of sinning? Alpha and Omega B. That you, Jesus, might be the preeminent one in our lives and in the church. Lord Jesus, that you will fill our gaze, that you will fill the, the, the aspirations and affections of our heart. Jesus, that every idol will fall before you, that Dagon will fall and be completely dismembered in your presence, that every idol that we have, whatever that idol be, let us take it from your throne tonight, Lord, and worship only thee. We come to the cross tonight. We come to the foot of the cross, Lord Jesus, and we behold your dying form and your blood flowing down. And we say, Lord, we thank you, but we're sorry that it was our sin. But we come afresh to the cross. And Lord, help us to see ourselves there, crucified with Christ. Let us crucify the works of the flesh tonight. Let us crucify our sins, knowing that they died in him. And let us come tonight with the power of atomic resurrection life out of the tomb knowing that Christ is in us. That the power that raised Christ from the dead is alive in you. If you've never been filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, ask him tonight and ask him by faith and believe it and take it by faith. Believe that he's heard you tonight. If you need refilled with the Spirit, and we need to be filled every day. It's not something that happened 40 years ago, folks. It's something that needs to happen every day, be continually being filled by the Holy Spirit. Ask Him for more. There's always more. There's always more. If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them than ask? There's much more. Much more. Thank God there's much more. Because what I tell you, see, if this is all there is, I've had it. I thank God for being here tonight and for these meetings. But if this is what my, the rest of my life's all about, I need more than this. I was made for more than this. It's not about numbers and it's not about anything to do with that. It's about God showing up in his manifest presence, in his holiness, until all we can do is fall on our faces and say, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. I'm undone. I'm undone. I'm, I'm wrecked. I'm broken in your presence. So take a few moments in the presence of God and you deal with him as he leads you.
If you need to come to the front, that's okay. come and bring your sin empty the vessel of self just lay it all down you may not have the power to overcome that's not what we're talking about you give it to him you say Lord I'm willing ask him to cleanse the vessel with the precious blood of the lamb confess your sins he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and then ask him upon the promise of the father and the son in the name of Jesus, to fill you full of the Holy Spirit, overflowing, to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and power, the fire of God would come upon you. Ask him, ask him, ask him, and believe upon the promise.